Break out your wireframes and heat up those Git repos. We're ready to tackle topics ranging from accessibility to front-end design, user experience, and beyond. You're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast with your hosts, Michael Feenan and Aaron Hill. This is episode number 75. I messed up last week, or last episode, I said it was 73 when it was actually 74, because we now have enough shows that I can't even keep them straight in my show notes. Um, I would actually probably blame it more on me moving topics around from week to week, but <laughs> no, I was just dumb. That's all your mouth's too. This is episode number 75. We're going to be talking about going back to yeah. basics with flaws and fundamentals. <laughs> um, I had some fun with alliteration in the title of this because I'm... I literally have no other gimmicks in my back pocket. We're going to be talking about stuff that people do wrong and uh, no, only my back pocket. Only my back pocket. Did you, did you check your front pocket? Uh, who carries change anymore? You should look in your front pocket. There might be change there. I, I use my watch. I got the little, uh, the NFC, you know, mm-hmm. don't have to touch nothing. No, no COVID, no COVID for Michael. I don't <laughs> touch nothing. I just boop, boop. Oh, nice. That's uh, really cool. If you are enjoying the Drunken UX podcast, be sure to check out our sponsors over at NewCloud. You can find them at newcloud.nucloud.com slash UX if you need any interactive mapping software or campus illustrations, map illustrations, uh, run by, drop uh, in and see what they have to offer. You guys should come check us out at uh, Twitter and Instagrams.com slash UX. Actually, Twitter and Facebook.com slash UX. But also instagiggle.com slash drunkenux podcast and at drunkenux.com slash discord. Come talk with us. Tell us what you think. Tell Michael where the change is. Okay, Aaron, I'm changing my pace up significantly this week. I've said many times I'm not a beer guy, but I'm drinking a Boulevard Jam Band. Show me the label on that. I picked up a six pack of this. It's a berry ale. Huh. Comes in at five point nine percent. It's not bad. Um, That's pretty strong. I've I found a couple beers recently that I I don't hate. Um, my friendly local neighborhood bar has what I uh, lovingly refer to as the '90s beer, because <laughs> I I don't know what its name is. Yeah. All I know is the tap handle looks like you know something from 1992. It's like neon and has like right. the the crisscrossy graphic lines and stuff. Oh so I just God, call it the '90s great. beer. Um, I like it. It's it's pretty good. And then. This I think I had this once before, and I saw it at the store, and I'm like, I I remember that, and so I got a six pack of it, and so I'm having that tonight. I've got a um a bourbon and coke. It's a four roses bourbon. It's basic. I've I've drank a lot of bourbon this week. Oh, good for you. It's nice to see you growing up. <laughs> I mean, we need to put a little more hair on your chest and and on your face. So this is the mo- this is the most facial hair I've ever had. Um, I know that it's not nearly as much of a beard as as your beard, but uh, yeah, the 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 quarantine has made me very furry. You, you can match the uh, the regalia of of my yeah, that's facial like, fur. That's like a if if ZZ Top was trying to be modest. <laughs> I uh, I I tell my sixth graders that uh, I'm just Santa Claus in training. <laughs> I don't do sixth graders still believe in Santa Claus? I I genuinely don't know. <laughs> Some might. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What we're going to be talking about is this idea of how do people, you know, approach or, or what, let's say not how do people, but what mistakes 
to <laughs> developers make early on that they may not realize they're making? Um, you know, what flaws are there in, in the code <laughs> that need to be avoided? Can I can I tell the story of how this topic came about? I mean, you, you're well. This is as far as I'm concerned. You're driving this show. <laughs> All right. So, I was checking my uh, as as many people are doing in the month of November. Um, it's open enrollment for my company for benefits, and so I was instructed to go to our benefits website, and you know sign in, and then make my benefit selections, and this site was just a nightmare because they they made they made everything be mediated through javascript and like we have all these behaviors that we get for free like if you have a button on a form and you click the button the browser will implicitly serialize the form data and send it to the target of the form if you have a link you can put a url on the link as an href property and if someone clicks on it it will do a link thing. It'll take you to the place. There's all these like behaviors that we get automatically. And then I don't know why, but people feel the need to like recreate or like redefine all these behaviors. And it's just nuts. But the, 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 the UX on this site was just terrible. I, I kept having problems with um, like I'd click on a button and the JavaScript would fail and I, I couldn't do anything. Like, like everything was mediated through the JavaScript. So when there were problems, like I could do nothing about it. I, uh, I didn't talk to you about this before, but the, I, I don't think I knew that this was an HR portal that you were using. Um, oh, you okay. just talked about the, the link activity and stuff uh, right. therein. I just did the same thing because it is <laughs> November now. Um, our HR portal for benefits doesn't work in Firefox. <laughs> wait why i don't oh. know it like it literally does not worry it will not let you in with firefox oh my god and yeah, that's think... that's kind of one of those same sort of things like it just makes me think what are you doing inside of this that is so weird and proprietary that it doesn't work in firefox that's bizarre that that is so strange so we want to help you not fall into those traps in this episode this is this is all about that stuff so if you are a super experienced dev, listen up and you may learn something that uh, you didn't think about or maybe you've been doing for a while. We have, uh, say we, me, I'm sure Aaron, you've got your things. There are mm -hmm. things I do that I know are not the best approach to stuff, yeah. but um, you know, sometimes you need to sit down and, and hear other people talk about it. And so we're going to try to help <laughs> a little bit on that. I want to start with markup. Yeah. Um, markup's an easy one. And I think actually I didn't write it here on the show notes, but I think one of the simplest things to do vis-a-vis uh, -vis markup is just learn it yeah. learn markup it doesn't take long it's not hard like you're talking a day in a day you can know html markup inside and out for the most part uh, yeah. but you you need to take the time to learn it and i learned and i think uh aaron you have plenty to say on this topic i think you know we, we <laughs> learned by doing a lot yeah, um, in the '90s and early 2000s, you know, we learned a lot by looking at other people's code and copying mm -hmm. and figuring out, and so we we learned by doing on a lot of that stuff. But you don't have to do that now. Like you can just learn by learning. Yeah, yeah. Like there's plenty of courses out there for this stuff, and lots of tutorial resources. I, I think another thing behind this episode is something that I've noticed. So I, I've been doing this professionally for like 16 years now, 
and like but like i was learning html in the mid 90s just i was doing it as an amateur yeah. and i know that you were similar right yeah like 96 around the... first website 1996 yeah i think mine was around then i forget exactly when it was built but... it on the the library computer because i didn't have internet at home awesome <laughs> when you and i were starting we were doing this stuff and like we kind of learned things as the technology grew and so like our knowledge grew with the technology with a fair amount of parity. Like, I don't think at any point we knew everything, but in the body of knowledge that was possible, I, at least I felt like this. And I, from talking to you, I think you did too, that we had a decent grasp of what was possible and how to do most things. I don't think that's the case anymore with, with the, like the junior devs entering the workforce. And, and I don't mean this as a slight on them at all. It's a circumstantial issue. Like they're, um, with boot camps, which are great resources and a great way to get to fast track your way into a job that can be very lucrative. Um, you're learning enough to be like functional in a workplace in a very short amount of time and you can get a job and you can do the job, but you're missing out on like some of the things that we've had the luxury of learning because we had a lot longer of like time to learn it. We've had more time and more experience. You don't pick up a lot of the theory sometimes, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it gets to be kind of a monkey see monkey do, which is one right. thing that I really struggle with myself is I hate tutorials that show me code to do something, but then yeah. doesn't say why they're doing it certain ways. Because for right. me, right. I like learning, well, why did you use a for loop instead of a spread operator or something like that? Right. Like there's, right. there's choices that are made. And we're going to talk yes. about some of those choices here in a few. That So, yeah, you and I both started doing HTML and we've done HTML forever and we did it. We learned it initially, which is like what people are learning now with boot camps and other, you know, getting started things. Um, but then after learning initially, we learned how to do it semantically and we learned like, you know, the correct ways to use tags. And I I don't think... I think there's a lot of people entering the workforce right now that haven't had that experience yet. And I think it's important for us as like kind of the, the old guard. I don't know if that's the right phrase or not, but no, we're old guard. That's old fair. guard. Okay. Yeah. I have white so, in my beard, a lot of white in my beard. It's you old, look like I'm, an old guard person. I am old guard. <laughs> uh, so us as the old guard, like I feel like we have a responsibility to share this with the new people coming in and to show them, you know, that all, all the things that like this ancient technology that, that exists already. <laughs> I love you juniors. You're great. And I just, there's a lot of stuff for you to learn. And we older, like seasoned developers want to share it with you and hear some of it. Here's some so of that's it. kind of, yeah. So the first one on my list is um, using header tags to control presentation. Okay, what do you mean by that? So, uh, you know how an H1 is bigger than an H6? Yes. I One thing that I see a lot of are people using H tags because they want big font. Got right? it. So, Got oh, it. well, that's H1's too big. So let's just make it an H3. Oh, yeah, that's right. about right. We'll leave that. With no regard for the fact that H tags, to use your phrase, have... they have semantic meaning. Exactly. They, they yeah. affect the outline of the page, which for most people isn't a big deal, but is a big deal to search engines and is a big deal to anybody using a screen reader. 
Yeah, the accessibility aspect is really, really important. Yeah, a lot of this will come back. I mean, accessibility is usability is is mm-hmm. doing things right. I mean, that's yeah. There's this is a life cycle, circle of life, whatever you want to call it, type of thing. You know, <laughs> um, so a lot of this will factor into that. But yeah, that's you know, it's a, a simple thing, and I see it a lot. Not even with developers, but with content managers. You know, you'll mm-hmm. get people who don't understand HTML. All they know is if I select H2, it's bigger than H3, so that's what I want. Right. And they don't think right. about it from an outline kind of standpoint. But H tags are meant to develop an outline. If you need an H2 to be small, style it small. I've seen places where there are classes H1 through H6. And yeah. you you like you use the headings as they're meant to be used. And then you just pick the, the class that you want to use for for size. Yeah. Um, which like I mean, it's technically not wrong, but like it just it feels like, huh? Well, <laughs> I, and here's what I'll say: we do that. We've got in our pattern library uh, yeah. use cases for that because there are places where, for instance, let's say let's say a normal H two is mm-hmm. uh, is is three RAM, bold, and orange. Okay, and other places, you know, an H three is two and a half RAM, black, and italic. Oh, and you want the H2 look. But yeah, on one right. page, the outline is not nested to that level or the artifact, right. like if it's a, you know, a, a card embed of some kind, like an mm-hmm. article card or something, the, the designer may want the look of the H2 on this element, even though from a DOM standpoint, it should be an H3. Got it. So it's, it. it's yeah, it, it's about pattern application at that point. Um so that that's why, at least for us, that's why we have that available to us. Um, that's cool. I like I. It it works and it solves the problem. So right, it's fine. It's I very just, simple. I, I just the first time I saw it though, I was like, "What?" <laughs> like, well, I mean, I think the I think the reason I'm questioning it is like, why would you call it H one through H six when you could use a more meaningful name like very large and very small and like gradations in between um like something that actually makes sense to a human reading it versus using something that is as replicating like html yeah uh, for us we we don't expect a a lay user to need to know yeah. that like that's that's sure. us doing it in design so to speak right. so that's why again for us it, it works out fine because it's just an application of a pattern in in template files yeah yeah so I see the next one is is P versus double break. Yeah, VR. I've seen that one before. Yeah, this is another one, and I think it's, I think it comes I've a d- little I've bit. I've done from, that one before, actually. It it comes from copy and paste. I think a lot. Mm. Okay. I don't know. I I may be wrong on that, but I feel like that's where I see it a lot is in content that feels like it was copied out of Notepad, for instance, and and then put into, it in. Put into a WYSIWYG editor without thought and you know oversight. Do you think that's because the WYSIWYG editor is interpreting a carriage return line feed as a line break? I mean, sure. It it has to be. Normally, I don't think a lot of people intentionally write HTML that way. Mm -hmm. But I do know it has happened. (laughs) Like, it's... I... Yeah. It's something that exists out in the wild. And even if it's happening because you're copying and pasting, it means you're not paying attention to what you're pasting. 
Where that gets scary is if you are copying and pasting a lot of stuff out of, for instance, Google Docs. Mm. We used to say this a lot. Can Remember how notorious it used to be copying content out of Word? <laughs> God. Oh, jeez, Michael, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, the nightmares, the anxiety that that would cause oh. a web developer because... All right. We have we have to explain this. Go for it. I don't think. All right. So there was like the O tag, right? It was like O colon yeah. MSXML or something. And there was like a class that was like MSO dash something. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then every every font styling would be done using a font tag, right? And like every every and piece of text, regardless of if it was formatted oh, yeah. or not, was wrapped in multiple elements yeah. in most cases. Oh my god. It was there it was so bad that WYSIWYG editors uh tiny MCE I know had this. I, I forget if FCK editor had it or not. They would have a paste from word option. Yeah. Which would clean up all the shit that comes in with word I mean, formatting. It it basically just stripped everything out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that that's um, what it makes me think of though. And and Google Docs is now sort of that. I have that problem a yeah. lot because we have, of course, content editors now that send us content to put on the site. Mm-hmm. And anytime I go to copy it out of their Google Docs, because that's what our people use, inevitably I get a P tag with a font weight equals something and then a span tag. And I have to go through and take all that crap out every single time because <laughs> I don't want it. It's like it's making the text bold and then manually restyling it to be normal i don't even know why that's a thing (laughs) i okay so i remember i know that i've done this in it was the late 90s and i was just doing my personal website i didn't think css existed yet but i know that the margins on a p p tag were too big and i i just wanted to have like a small line break in between a paragraph. And I, I remember using a double line break for that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause so, a line like, break is, is line height as opposed to a P yes. tag, which it's margin could be whatever is defined. It, yeah. It varies. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. It, I think the, if you're concerned about vertical spacing, the solution to that is to, uh, fix your P margins yeah. better. Um, define it right for for the space you're using it the context you're using it in yeah so the next one that i've got is a a simple one hold on yeah oh there's that sound (laughs) uh buttons versus classing buttons yeah so this is i i see this a lot in like templating css frameworks like bootstrap yeah um they'll have like a button class and then you'll simulate buttons that are actually links and uh, like this this again is more of an accessibility thing than yeah than anything else uh, so but buttons are tricky because you have input type equals button and then you have button yeah. itself and then you have links that can be made to resemble buttons by styling them with css in input um, type so let's go through these right yeah. so if you are using input type equals button, this one's easy because it should only be used in a form. Is this type equals button or type equals submit? Well, both. You can you can 
submit means it's a submit button like that's going right. to trigger the form behavior mm. but you can have an input type equals button which would be for like javascript stuff which would be yeah you'd have to attach something yeah. to it obviously um right but it's it is meant to be inside a form element and nowhere right. else you should never use right. that anywhere else on your page on a normal button element like literally button tag the button tag has uh, sort of the intrinsic quality of being something that is an interaction. It mm -hmm. should do something on the page. If you right. if you click it, it should increment something. If you click it, it should pop something up. If you click it, mm -hmm. it should do something interactive. It should uh, have a function. It, it should have a function on the page. Usually where you have an A tag that is just classed button is when you just have a link that has to go somewhere and you're trying to create a repetitive UI element that looks nice. And so the classic example of this is the read more button, you know, mm -hmm. uh, or get more information or apply now. Like we make buttons that are what we call CTAs, calls to action. Those are fine. But what happens is people start to use one or the other mm -hmm. always. As it opposed to, to use them contextually correct. Thing. Yeah, it, it's all semantics. An A tag should always go somewhere. <laughs> it's funny when you see a button that has class button. Yeah, I've um, seen that. I understand why sometimes you have to do that. But whenever I see that, I'm like, why don't you just style the button element? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then do a sass mix-in of the styles for yeah. I I do always make sure that that is in my CSS. Yeah, yeah no, I I think that's that that makes sense. If you want to have like a link that functions as a link and looks like a button, okay. Um but like it should be clear that it's like what the function is. Yeah. And it should go somewhere. You should never have because yeah. where this gets a little gnarly is when you start seeing a tags that have an href of a hash. Right, and Where, it's just wired up to JavaScript, and it's yeah, yes, it, that's it, what I saw on that benefits site. Right, they those, hijack those links, the behavior, and then make it do something. Yes, they did JavaScript void for the href, and then, uh, and then it was like on it was on click, when then that would handle the link thing, and I'm like, why, why would you do this? And what a lot of people I think don't realize is what does A stand for? <laughs> a has an, a, a semantic meaning. Anchor, right? Yes. Okay, it's an that's, what, that's what I thought it was. It goes somewhere. It it anchors your behavior to a location, and so it, the whole point is, if you don't have an href on it that goes to a URL of some kind or to another point on the page, then mm. you should be using the button tag. Yeah, that's I, I will the say. Way. In the HTML 1.0 spec, I think most of the tags were very very short. So it was like A tag for links. Oh God, yeah. B for bold. I for italics. I. O for no no. Uh, U for underline. Oh God, yeah. Um, U. Remember that one? Okay, haven't used that in memories. A long time. I have a <laughs> I have a picture of me and a little little baby U just sitting on the on the shore of the beach looking out before it grew up. Yeah, but like there was a lot of single letter tags because you had to type them by hand and because you know space was a yeah space was a commodity then. A versus um, anchor saves you four bytes. Yeah, I mean the the funny thing though is that when I think it was when HTML three came out, 
and you had the link tag, which would be used for linking like a CSS document yeah. to the page. So you have a link tag, but then you have a tags. And so I feel bad for anyone who had to learn HTML that at that period <laughs> would be like, like, so I need to use a link tag to make a hyperlink, right? Well, no, you use an A tag. <laughs> that is a fair point. That is a, a fair, that's a usability issue with HTML. I will acknowledge. Yes. Um, but yeah, so buttons versus anchors and classing them as buttons is just all about knowing when to use the right one. Buttons should yeah. be used for functional stuff on the page. Anchors should be used anytime you're going somewhere. And it's, it's pretty simple and straightforward. Use the right one for the right place. Um, one uh, mistake I see a lot, and this is kind of a simple one, and there's not a lot to say about it, but it's just duplicating nav. I think I know what you mean by that, but can you clarify? Yeah, um, talking about like mobile devices. So you see this a lot with responsive design. When people are first getting into responsive and they want to have a, a menu for their desktop and a menu for their phone, and instead of designing a responsive navigation, they show or hide a navigation based on a, a media query. This is problematic because you have two navs in the DOM Oh, gotcha. And what we discussed, remember when we were talking about political websites and one of the criticisms yeah. I brought up was when you were, if you were using keyboard navigation, if you were needing you accessibility stuff, it, yeah. it will, it, it can, it not, it won't always, but it can tab into a hidden navigation like that. So mm -hmm. it's, there's no reason to, to duplicate that. Um, yeah. yeah, there's just no reason to do it. Um, it's just a matter of learning better CSS and media queries to re-architect, realign, redo whatever it is you're trying to do with that main nav, whether that's make swipeable panels or sub navs or you know uh, sub drop downs, things like that. Like right. it's it's all all that's possible. You just have to do the little bit extra work for your media queries. Right. Uh, so the next one you have on the list is time. Time. And I I know of the time tag. K or but I'm S. Not sure. <laughs> So the time tag is for when you're multiplying content, right? Donde esta la biblioteca? <laughs> I don't know why this is funny to me. Time. <laughs> no, the reason I threw the time element in here is because we, I'm sure we covered this. We, we did an episode, I don't know, season two, about HTML elements that aren't used enough. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that one. And the time tag was included in that. And I'm including it again here because time is so relative to borrow from a good friend of mine uh man uh, uh, mr hawking no, you don't have to worry about it oh um steve time is something we deal with whether you are writing a blog or a news site or even you know posting products or things you know we we have time displayed on our websites in so many places mm -hmm. and yet time and time and time again no pun intended <laughs> Those things get wrapped in a div with a span, class equals month, all of this. There mm. is a time element. You can wrap, again, this is about applying semantic meaning to stuff. And because we use time so much in development and in presentation, yeah. not using that element is just wasting semantic value for your page. I think that this and then the next item that we're going to talk about also is is underscoring this general concept that when you're writing HTML, the the semantic meaning of the markup matters. Yeah. 
And I think that's probably maybe like kind of the take home. If if you are new to the game and by new, I, I really mean like five years or less. Like I'm, I'm including people three and four years in this. If you're new to the game, like this is something that's really important is that the, the, the tags themselves have meaning. I don't care if you're writing React or Rails or PHP or whatever, use the right HTML tags. And the more correct your HTML is, the more machine readable it is, the more accessible it is, and the more that you can do with it. It's, it's an important thing. I'll take it a step further because mm -hmm. it's one thing to talk about, like I, it's easy to learn how to write an anchor tag or learn how to write an input tag and sort of the sterile, here is the way this tag is written. Semantics is all about how tags relate to other tags in your HTML yeah. and the meaning that that creates as, uh, as sort of a vocabulary for the code. That's mm -hmm. what semantics means to me anyway. And, and like when I talk to uh, people about it, so that that's why this becomes important because time is sort of an, to borrow another phrase that we've latched onto an <laughs> idiom. It's an idiom of HTML. <laughs> and so we are using a more robust and meaningful uh, system of talking when we use these elements. Yeah. I think that's a fair way of putting that. Um, sure. My next one is similar in, in the I, sense of... I, I, I was going to say, I think this is very similar. Uh, you, you have omitting the ABBR tag. Yeah. And ABBR is, is ironically short for abbreviation. Yeah. Abbreviation. <laughs> um, uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> anytime, you know, and, and we, we go through this all the time, right? We try to say, you know, well, yeah. if I say HTML, let's stop for a second and make sure people know that's hypertext markup language. You know? So the this is another place that semantics play in here. So when you take an acronym or an abbreviation and you wrap it in an ABBR tag and you give it the property, which I want to say is title. Yes. Um, and then you, you spell out the thing. Then that on its own doesn't demand any specific behavior, but the browsers have kind of a contract or, or compact, I would say with, with the semantics of HTML and they will say, well, if someone's going to use an ABBR tag with the title property, we're going to infer that what they mean is they want to convey, you know, this is the expanded version of the abbreviation and we're going to present that in this way. And the browsers can, the browser designers or software engineers can decide what that means for their browser. When you choose to participate in the semantic meanings and behaviors of these tags, you're participating in this kind of uh not relationship but this agreement with the the browser designers that by using your html correctly they're going to present it correctly for you and again seo meaning screen reader meaning mm -hmm. um and it's just helpful it's it's just flat out helpful um the the final one on here is uh, again related to semantics uh, and the the big semantics like i mentioned relationships between elements not using labels on your fields or at least not marking them up properly um i mm -hmm. see that a lot you know when people make forms they'll put inputs in there in text and they'll just use p tags line breaks brbr BR, um to make the space in their form but they aren't wrapping the text in a label tag for the element that it's related to 
again, helps for semantics, helps for screen readers, helps for interactivity, makes your hitbox bigger, especially for checkboxes. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of reasons why that's super valuable, but it's a really common mistake that people make. I, I would say that um, whenever I've been at places that have gotten accessibility audits, um, either there may or may not have been lawsuits involved, <laughs> Including label tags on form fields has invariably been like every time that comes up. Yeah. So it's it's a really easy thing to add and you get a lot of behaviors for free with, with how that works. Like the browser will pair things together better. Yeah. Um, the, uh, browsers will usually, even if you don't have a for attribute on a label, generally browsers will attach a label to the nearest sibling input mm -hmm. um, by default, but... Obviously, like I say, the, having the for attribute helps significantly to make sure right. that nothing gets screwed up, especially if it's after, like some people put stuff after a field instead, especially with checkboxes and radio buttons. So, right. There's, there's a lot of these, uh, Adrian Legaspi has an article, HTML underrated tags. I'll have linked in the show oh, notes. Nice. A lot of these are in that and, and you can That's go back great. to our, our previous episode. I'll find what that was and, and maybe throw that <laughs> in the show notes. Let's talk JavaScript. Yeah. My first is don't rely on jQuery for everything. Yeah. Don't learn JavaScript through jQuery. <laughs> and I may not have don't, said that. Don't a tell few me to live my ago. life, Michael. I'm sorry. <laughs> so don't tell me how to live my life, no. Michael. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I I say this as kind of a proxy for, you know, the people who used to sort of learn PHP by virtue of doing WordPress, oh, but yeah, they okay. didn't know okay. they were learning PHP. Right. There's a lot to be said for sort of the training wheels that WordPress gives you or that jQuery gives mm -hmm. you for these languages. But I think where we are as an industry with browser support and, and all of this, I, I agree with Chris Ferdinandi. Vanilla JS, learn that first. Learn, mm -hmm. learn that base stuff long before jQuery. Because the thing is now jQuery is going to start to teach you bad habits. You're going to lean mm -hmm. on it, and as a result, you're going to bloat your code. You're going to slow down your site because you could do it much quicker with native code. His podcast, by the way, is great. Um, the episodes are very short, and he talks about cool JavaScript things. He did one about performance, which I think we talked about that stuff on that episode with him. Yeah. Um, but the the thing about it is that, you know, jQuery, yes, it's easy, yes, it's fast, but at this point, you are shortchanging yourself in skills mm -hmm. that will make you more valuable as you progress if you just learn to do stuff in uh, in Vanilla.js. And in fact, what I'll do is, I, I don't have it here in the, in the notes, but as I edit this, I'll make a note to myself. Uh, well, I'll throw an article, a document, rather, in the show notes uh, from us a user named Nephi. He's got a GitHub okay. repo that shows you basically how to do all the common stuff in jQuery using oh, Vanilla.js. Nice. Oh, right. I think you mentioned that. Yeah, I, I think I've, I'm that's, sure that's I've brought it up or linked it in something else, but it's it's very useful. Um, it's a great way, like if you're going to do a dot find, what's the quicker way to do it or what's the better way to do a dot find? And um, yeah, check that out. Um, the next thing was the one you had kind of mentioned that sort of started this whole thing, mm -hmm. which is duplicating native functionality. Yeah. So this, <laughs> this is like this idea of, you know, using JavaScript to fire off links. God, I hate that. 
there's n- I really, no I reason. I really, really hate that. Yeah. That, well, that goes to sort of, and I didn't have it in the notes, but it's a, a great point about JavaScript development in general, which is make sure you build in failure. Mm-hmm. Don't let it, like, and the classic, right, is X is undefined. You know, you're checking a variable that, for whatever reason, isn't set. And as a result, you've now stopped the execution of all of your JavaScript because your JavaScript file failed. You need to make sure you check what if it's undefined? Then should we still run or should we console log it and move on? You have to handle errors and not handling errors in JavaScript is a major, major issue um, that will slow mm-hmm. you down and, and prevent your users from using your site. Um, so you have uh, inefficient DOM manipulation. Yeah. What do you mean by that? But what do you think I mean by that? Um, think about all the ways well, that we have to grab stuff from the DOM, right? Oh, okay, okay. So like, so like, if you have an inefficient uh, selector query right. or something. So yeah, this gets it. into the differences between things like query selector, query selector all, mm-hmm. get element by right. class name, get element by ID. Um, these are great utilities. You know, they basically take the place of the the sort of dollar sign parentheses mm-hmm. grab. You know, whatever class name you put into it for jQuery. These are the analogs right. for those in, in different contexts, but Query selector all is incredibly greedy and mm-hmm. I mean at scale very, very inefficient <laughs> because hmm. it is literally having to tra- traverse your DOM every time it fires. Whereas get element by ID is much more efficient. Yeah. And again, it's one of those things where when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> Once you've decided, well, query selector all. That works for everything I need. I'll just use it on all of them. Right. It, That's a good one. It makes a lot of sense. If, if you can ID something in your code and use get element by ID, it's going to make your JavaScript faster and your page more efficient. Even if it's small already, it's still, you know, again, this is one of those things where learn to do it right because five years from now, you may be working on a site where that will matter. And those differences could right. be what gets you a job or doesn't get you a job. So. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to throw back to JavaScript and markup uh, and buttons. Yeah. I'm going to tie all those together. Cause you said something that reminded okay. me. One of the other things I've seen that people do with JavaScript and bad markup is create like clickable span tags. Have you seen these? Oh God. Yeah, we, we looked at, didn't yes. we look at a library site back, uh, quite a few episodes <sighs> yeah. back. And one of those had like panels, they had the widgets on the page and, and everything was clickable, yes. but it was all span yes. tags. <laughs> yeah. So don't. Don't do that either. Okay, so CSS. Some of these come from an article over at painlesscss.com, the top 10 CSS mistakes. Um, I think I threw one or two of these in um, from my own. Mm-hmm. First of all, same thing, using yeah. overly specific selectors. And so this gets into classes and IDs. So I, I right. like this sort of piggybacking this, uh, this discussion. Have have you ever looked at like the sort of equation that gets used for CSS specificity? Um, we talked about this with in a previous episode. Yeah, I don't remember if it was the one with Dustin Shaw or not, but it was a previous episode. I remember talking about CSS specificity. Yeah, I I don't remember where we talked about it, but basically there is yeah. there is an equate. It's not an equation. Is maybe not the best term. A convention, like an inequality. Um, yeah, that kind of. Uh, there's like a four digit number that gets computed based on 
the specificity, IDs, classes, elements, and, and inline, and trying to determine what overrules what. So when you've got these strings of, of selectors, how do you know which one should apply over another? Or if you've got uh, selectors that use different class names but ultimately target the same stuff, which rules apply over another? One of the ways this breaks for people is that, A, and there's, I'm going to say straight out, there are different schools of thought on this. I am one that says, don't use IDs in CSS. There are reasons to. There are mm -hmm. certainly, you know, everybody's code is different. Everybody's, you know, needs are different. So you may be in a situation where it makes sense. Are we talking about performance reasons? Mostly performance reasons, yes. Okay. It's mostly about the fact that an ID is top-tier specific uh, aside from mm -hmm. a style tag. Uh, and that quality makes it very hard to override as a consequence of mm -hmm. it. Um, and so if you're using IDs, you're setting yourself up in a position where, you know, if you need to change the way something looks on one page versus another, you can't do that. You can't apply an ID multiple times on the page. So if you've got a reusable style, you can't reuse it if you've used an ID tag. Um, so IDs generally should be avoided. The one area where I like it is using IDs to kind of namespace a set mm -hmm. of styles, that makes sense to me. If you need to isolate something kind of away from it, using an ID as sort of the parent selector can help lock that down. And like I say, every use case will be a little different, but um, by using classes, you can create these nice reusable chunks that don't have to be super specific. The, the way that we used to do it, um, and I know it doesn't get done this much anymore because of CSS frameworks, but you would have the ID tag would basically define the different sections of the page. So you'd have an ID for like the nav area. You'd have an ID for the body, like the content area or the main. Sometimes you'd have an ID for the header ID for the footer. And that would kind of, that would kind of be it usually, unless it was a really like an important reason, like add space number two or something, but that would be it for IDs. And then everything else would be classes underneath it. So you're, your nav items would be, uh, you know, class nav item, and your articles would be class article. This is before the article tag existed, but you would, but the IDs would only be a few of them on a page. Most of the styles you would use after that would be classes, or you would do like Michael was saying. You would use it. You start with the ID, and then you would do a CSS hierarchy. You know, so uh, content, and then P, and then A. And then you would say, like, well, what does a link tag look when it's in the content paragraphs? From a performance standpoint, the longer you make the selectors, the mm -hmm. more dense they are, and the longer they take to process as a consequence. If you know... But chances are your page is probably not complicated enough for that performance. Yeah, matter. probably not. Yeah. Um, at least at yeah. first, like I say, you end up at a big company <laughs> and get into some gnarly SAS files... Using, for instance, direct descendant uh, um, mm -hmm. attributes and stuff in your selectors starts to make a big difference because that helps narrow down the specificity so that it can, yeah. you know, it, it's not traversing a whole ancestor tree. There's an, art, there's an, art, there's an article. I was just going to say that. Oh, I was going to say there's an art to doing it. Oh, 
<laughs> There's an article over at slicejack.com that gets into specificity and how it's calculated. I'll throw that in the show notes in case anybody wants to dig in because I think it is really important if you're writing CSS to understand mm -hmm. how the selectors you write affect specificity. I think that matters a ton, actually. What do you have? What do you, it says PX. PX. What do you mean for that? Pixels. Like padding? Oh, pick. Okay. Uh, over over reliance on using pixels as your measurement scheme because pixels don't scale. Pixels are fine to define like your base font size, but beyond the at the page's base font size, you should be using rems and m's for everything for the most part. Right, and so m's are m's the are width of an m character, and then rems are the width of an m character at the root level, right. like a root m. So. It basically comes down to is is the size relative to my parent or relative to my root? I use okay. rems for almost everything. Yeah. Um, there there are rare occasions where you will want something relevant to a parent, especially if you're dealing with image sizing or something like that. Mm. Most of the time, mm -hmm. I like rems just because I know my base font size is 16, so I know you know all my math can factor off that. Why that matters is when you start zooming pages, being able to scale pages right. and have them scale seamlessly and beautifully Correctly. in in terms of getting bigger and smaller, REMs are what yeah. make that possible. Right. Okay. Um, so we have building media queries from large to small. Uh, mobile first. Still a mobile first world. Let's, but let's, let's go into that in more. Like for media queries, we're talking about in your SAS... Or I guess you could do it in regular yeah, CSS. Yeah, it's, it's normal CSS, but yeah, SAS lets you do certainly crazier stuff. The The idea being... So you, you define like min-width, max-width. Right. Build for yeah. your smallest width first, not your biggest width. Mm -hmm. We tend to build for desktop because we're on a desktop when we're writing all this. The right. reality is taking a desktop layout and writing code to conditionally change it as it gets smaller is significantly mm -hmm. harder then yeah. writing something linear for a small screen and then writing CSS to change it as it gets wider. That's a good point. I, I don't do this enough, That's, I think. Yeah, it's a hard lesson to learn, and it's... Yeah. I'm, I don't know if it's unintuitive, but I know that it's definitely something that until you've done it and, and really thought about the way responsive stuff works, it doesn't mm -hmm. make a lot of sense until you see that in action, but... The whole thing comes down to, you know, mobile device tends to be very linear. It's very one, mm -hmm. two, three, four in a column. At most, you may have something side by side, but on a phone, you're, you're so limited on horizontal width that you're not going to have a lot of stuff. Taking something that isn't linear to begin with and forcing it to be linear is much harder than taking something linear and then moving it around as you want to. This is where, and we haven't done an episode on it, but one is coming um, on like CSS grids. CSS grids are a revelation in terms of responsive design and figuring out like how to take something linear and make it, you know, all gridded out and moved around and look nice on a wide screen. Hmm. Um, but that it's just this idea that it's, it, you're going to save time and it's going to make your site better by building small to large than large to small. I like that. And the last one I have is web fonts. And I I don't I know what web fonts are, but I'm not sure what their point is here. <laughs> I should have put more notes, right? 
uh, web fonts <laughs> is all about size. It's just about the amount of data we're packing into requests. People like web fonts because it's an easy way to make a site look pretty. Mm -hmm. But it's also an easy way to make a site huge. <laughs> Got it. You know, like yeah. web fonts, especially if you start getting into variable fonts, those files are enormous and you are yeah. really going to, you're going to very quickly make your site wildly out of control in terms of uh, the payload size. So that's that's actually a really good point. I, I think, let's say you're using a web font, like you found a really cool font and you're, you want to use it for like the header of your image or something, um, like the header of your site. It would be better to rasterize that as an image and then do an alt tag or a title tag on it rather than load it as a web font if that's the only place you're using it. Because the image will probably be smaller. And if you're going to use a web font, resist the urge to use like a really fancy or wild looking font, especially if it's for or, your body copy. Or resist the urge to use every variation of it. Yeah. The, the point of a website is to communicate words and communicate ideas. So don't create hurdles for your users. I, I mean... I, Font is important, and I'm not trying to say that like we should all use Times New Roman or Arial or whatever. But unless you have a really good reason, like go with a basic font. I mean, if you can just use a plain sans serif font, or use one that is on most systems, or just provide like a you know the fail sequence with like a Arial then sans serif. So like the font family property is really good for that. And if the font's available, that's great. And if it's not, then it should display okay otherwise. The last uh, area I have is media before I've, I've got the sort of generic one coming up after this. But the only thing I have to say about media is optimize your imagery. Don't take uh -huh. a photo on your DSLR and upload it straight to your website or even on your phone these days. Uh, optimize your, your imagery for either the width that it's going to be or the display depth that needs to be. You don't need 8 meg images on your site. That's a big one. Go check, check episode 45. 45. Yes. It was images, formats, and optimization. I beat you to it this time. I, I had <laughs> actually looked up which episode number it was because I'm tired of always getting one up on that. Uh, yeah, uh, just make sure. And there's yeah, we have a whole episode that gets into how to optimize your imagery and why. Um, and it's just a thing where it's so easy for somebody to take a picture and just throw it on a website and not think about the fact that, oh, that image is huge, um, especially if you're on a fast connection. So be considerate of those users who maybe have limited bandwidth. The last area is just accessibility, generic accessibility. A lot of what we have said applies to accessibility, but there are some a, a few very basic ones. The first is the obvious, which is not taking time to put in alt attributes because you're lazy. Stop being lazy and write your damn alt <laughs> attributes. There's no reason not to. It takes you a few seconds. I admit I'm bad about it on Twitter. Now that they support doing it, I'll upload images and not write a description. I should, and I'm lazy, and that is not good on me, <laughs> and that is not good on you if you're not doing it. So, alt attributes. <laughs> it is okay to leave an alt attribute blank if the image is purely pres or purely decorative, it helps if you put role equals presentation on that image. 
And then that way a screen reader huh. knows specifically that that image is not meant to convey information. So alt attributes. That's cool. Type them in. Do it. <laughs> Tiny hitboxes. So this is one that's going to come up in WCAG 2.2. Um, you have a minimum hitbox size in, in WCAG 2.2. It's 44 pixels. At least it was in the last uh, release candidate that had come out. Um, it may have changed uh, since then. But 44 pixels was the minimum. Stop making stuff small. And where I see this as a problem is when people use icons for things. Like, you know, mm, your profile. Yeah. Like you go into your profile and you have an edit icon and, and stuff like that. And they put that little cog up there. But the cog is like a 16-pixel cog. <laughs> right. 44 pixels that's that's going to be the minimum standard for accessibility compliance um and it just makes it easier for your users why are you making me be precise with my mouse on a 2k or 4k monitor give me some room you don't need that level of density give me some room um and then the other one is just making choices that fail so this one is a little more abstract and it's one that you you have to take the time to learn some accessibility stuff. And I know it's so easy to just jump in and start writing code and start building a website, but you need to take the time to learn things. Color contrast is a big one. Learning not to put certain colors on top of each other. You know, white on yellow or yellow on light is a common one or white on orange, um, you know, for alert stuff. Doesn't work. You mm -hmm. have to use a dark orange, like a burnt umber type color. Um, because you don't pass color contrast standard. And you have to care about that to do it, because the, the browser will let you do it. The browser will let you write that code. It's you who have to stop yourself from doing it. If you have, uh, I've actually been dealing with this in the past couple of weeks. If you have text displaying over an image that may or may not be light or dark, like you, you have kind of like a, a template and the image is going to be varied depending on when the, how the template renders. You can use the, what is it, text shadow? Yeah. So use text shadow like 2px, 2px black, and it will give your text a nice black outline that will always give you contrast on the text um, regardless of what the background color yeah. is. The other one is stuff like people will frequently do things like, well, I don't, I don't like underlines under my text. And so CSS <laughs> will let you remove that. So that you're, Are you talking about on links? Yeah, so links won't be underlined. Yeah, Links need to be underlined. You can't convey right. meaning through just color. And if the only way people know something is a link is because it's blue, that's not good enough. Right. That, that is not accessible at that point. The contrast between black and link blue color is not very no. much. No, not at all. Yeah. Especially if you are full color blind. Or, or, uh, I'd have to run it through. I think one of the other ones, you don't have to be full color blind. Uh, one of the other ones, blue turns <laughs> black, basically. Um, mm -hmm. You need, and it, like I say, it's a design decision, and it's one you can make in a vacuum if you don't know things about accessibility. You don't like underlines, so you just take them out. And you don't consider the fact that people need underlines to identify what, what's clickable on your page in some cases. The, I think the gold, the gold standard is using the standard blue link text that your browser gives you and the underline that your browser gives you, and that's what you use for links. Um, and then if you have to do different than that because reasons, have a good reason for it. 
So I hope this helps you out. I hope it gives you some insight into the things you can try to avoid from a pitfall standpoint and, and things you can sort of adapt to and change and, and tweak to make sure your stuff is better. The big thing is always be looking towards what makes your code better, what makes it faster and more efficient and more just right. Um, don't assume that just because you learned something one way that that's the only way. Question, you know, sit down and, and say, why is this, you know, why is this the HTML I use for this? Or why was this the one that, you know, why, why, are, why is this if statement the way it was written for this JavaScript function I'm using? Question stuff and, and try to figure out is there a better way to do it because that's how you consistently get better. Stick with us. We're going to take a break real fast and we'll be right back. The Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. NewCloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. I hope everybody enjoyed tonight's show. Stick with us. We got about three more shows left for the the season, and then we're out of your hair. But actually, we won't be because we'll be right back in January. But we're going to take a break probably somewhere in there. It'll be imaginary to you guys. If you want to contact us, though, don't be afraid to reach out. We are on Twitter or Facebook at slash drunken UX. On Instagram, you can hit us up at slash drunken UX podcast. And you can always chat with us at drunkenux.com slash discord. And that will get you into our friendly neighborhood discord server Aaron I appreciate you yes, uh, joining me this evening and, and spending time out of your night I know it's been busy for you and that you're a an, uh, a guy <laughs> citation needed I mean, well the beard's kind of a giveaway um, I mean it, it, at least in my experience uh, folks stick with us we got a lot coming up for the rest of the season we got some exciting stuff queued up for next season um we've also got a couple more surprises left for 2020 i think that uh maybe of i mean it's gonna it's of interest to us i'm always yeah. kind of trying to stack up a few things here all i care about is at, at the end of the day just keep your personas close and your users closer no <laughs> jokes this week yeah bye-bye bye, -bye. bye. <laughs>